Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers, all for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. I'd like to welcome Cynthia Manuel to the podcast. Cynthia is the CEO and founder of Authentica Consulting, LLC. She specializes in equity, diversity, and inclusion, mentoring, and multicultural marketing. She is the proud daughter of immigrants and a first-generation Latina. She was named one of the 23 business people to watch in 2019 by the Portland Business Journal for her work contributing to communities of color through professional development, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. She is passionate about education and has worked with the Gates Millennium Scholarship, Alumni Association, Hispanic Scholarship Fund, and the United Negro College Fund. She's also a TEDx speaker. She deeply believes that building strong communities is key to creating a powerful voice that drives change. I appreciated Cynthia and my conversation, especially because we covered a range of issues from the challenges nonprofits face in trying to make their services more accessible and what they need to think about when getting started with community engagement. We also looked at the parallels between traditional mentor-mentee relationships and those traditional approaches to community engagement. You will hear why Cynthia thinks traditional mentoring is backwards. Let's jump in. Welcome, Cynthia, to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Uh, Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. And just to get us started, tell listeners kind of how you came to the work that you're doing, kind of what was your path, what was your journey? I actually started um, with a background in coding uh, when I was like super young. And then I quickly, when I started doing internships in school and college, I realized that my, uh, my other passion was marketing. And then I went on to do that for almost 10 years. And slowly, I ended up working for a health insurance company, a startup company that was in the need of just people to come and get it going. And I had been working in the healthcare system and marketing for a few years at that point. And I said, absolutely. So I jumped on board and I got in, like embedded into the, the startup world, I guess you can call it. And I was doing operations, marketing, uh, tech, I mean, customer service, sales, outreach. And it was a really great way for me to explore what was out there and how my skills could get trans- be transferable in different areas. And so after that, I really, one of the things that I really enjoyed in that job was really how much I was connecting with the community and really transferring that information to develop the products and services we wanted to do. And so then later on, I ended up and another nonprofit organization that really was, um, I had to set up a program for students. We were placing students of color in companies across the Portland metro area in Oregon. And I really was utilizing all my negotiation skills, uh, <laughs> my strategy skills in that area. And really, again, trying to bring to board what we were hearing in the community, what we were hearing from the business side, as well as the students. And when I was having those conversations, a lot of the things that kept coming up was a lot in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we were, you know, um, I was meeting with CEOs, VPs, exec, um, you know, like managers in all different areas, all different industries. And we, they were asking us, well, how do we continue to have this conversation? How do we attract talent? How do we retain talent? How do we develop the talent? And I was like, well, 
I think this is a little out of my range. So then I decided to go back to school and get a certificate in strategic diversity and inclusion management from Georgetown University. Because I just, I just wanted to have the lingo and be able to have those more effective conversations. And that's when I realized that that was truly probably one of the passions that brought together everything that I had learned in the past. And so now I am a consultant. I have my own company. I am equity and inclusion consultant. And I love it so much because I have not only the freedom to be able to design what services I want to provide to the community that I care about, but also I'm able to continue to learn and, and be part of this bigger conversation that is happening in the U.S. And my listeners focus in on are, are generally nonprofit staff, board members, association staff and board members, and, you know, across our entire culture, folks are grappling with diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. And, and we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And it's, and it's only highlighting the huge inequities that are throughout our, our system. But for those organizations that are serving and, and, you know, wanting to, I think people have been talking about this for a long time, but the progress forward hasn't been what we've, you know, what you would want. What would you say are the key kind of things that folks need to start thinking about in conversations that staff and board members need to start having? Yeah, no, great question. Definitely, I think, like you mentioned, this pandemic is kind of highlighting a lot of the areas in where we still need to do a lot of work. I will say one of the key things, you know, I mentioned a lot earlier that going out to the community and really talking to individuals, I, I think that one of the things when we implement policies or create services to kind of serve those who are in need, we often forget that there are inequities within those uh, in those communities themselves. And so we try to, I feel like what I've seen a lot lately is policies that is like, um, they want to be equal right? They want to be accessible. Yeah, that is one of the biggest things where they are failing in accessibility. So I'll give you an example super quick. And this is just more like a general example. But when we're talking about providing meals to students, schools are saying, okay, you know, we'll give you the meals. We'll just come and get them at the school. But there are a lot of kids that don't have transportation to get to those sites. And then they might be only be able to go once. So a lot of the schools were saying, okay, we'll be open for breakfast and we'll be open for lunch. So that means that they have to take two trips and figuring out if the parents are still working, what does that look like, accessibility, uh, the students that are special needs, what does that look like for them too? So I think one of the things when it comes to building policies or programs is really understanding the mechanics behind every single thing that it could potentially affect somebody not being able to access some of the services. Yeah, there's just so many assumptions built into, you know, the sudden move to, okay, all, you know, student, all the students are going to be learning online. Well, you know, what access do they have to a device that can can access the internet? Mm -hmm. You know, what Wi-Fi do folks have on the other end? I mean, it's just, there's so many, I mean, we're having to make a, a really uh, quick pivot, but at the same time, yeah, there are so many ripple effects. Yeah. And I think it, especially when it comes to nonprofit, because nonprofits are there to serve the community, especially right now in, in moments of crises and anxiety and stress. And also, I feel like we are uncovering a series of things that we didn't know came along with what we're providing services for in those areas. And I think mental health is a big issue as well when it comes to 
How do you even process that you need certain services? How do you know where to find information? I think a lot of the times uh, we also forget what in what language do we want our communities to receive information as too. Like my parents are mostly Spanish speakers. And right now, if honestly, if it wasn't for me and my sister who are at home who are English speakers, we wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be able to get a lot of the information that they need. So I think that that's another key thing. If it, if you're an organization that is providing a service, you know, try to see are there how can my information be able to help other communities, even though that might not be your target market. And if you can bring language on board, I think that that's that would be a huge help for the communities too. Right. So hopefully, organizations have a lot of those things set up already, but because uh, it's hard to, to create all of that in a crisis, but it's so important. You know, one of the things that you focus on is, is community engagement. What would you say is really key to the effective community engagement? Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I try a lot of different things um, because I think one of, one of the key components that I found when I was doing community engagement was gaining the trust of the individuals that I was actually trying to help or trying to reach out to. And that can make or break a lot of the um, programs that you implement. Because again, you know, I think nonprofit organizations, often we get in the idea of like, we see a need, we want to fill it, and we want to do everything we possibly can. And there are other organizations who are backing it up financially. But then we come to those communities and we're saying, hey, you know, here we are, we're providing the service to you. And they might be like, I don't know who you are. Like, why should I trust you? I think that sometimes organizations might spend a lot more time trying to gain that trust and services are being kind of halted in some ways when it should be all the way around. You should gain the trust of the community you're trying to serve and really be genuine. I think one of the things that I always talk about is authenticity and people can can read through your emotions, can read through your body language and your intentions. So I will say be authentic, be honest, be um, caring and empathetic, but really gain the trust of that community to be able to really gain and extract the real needs that the community has and for them to be able to, to know that they can feel comfortable utilizing the services you're providing. And almost being in partnership rather than mm-hmm. it being a, you know, a one down or that power dynamic of the organization. I think too many organizations, um, you know, their first step towards, you know, trying to center equity more is to start doing, if they haven't been doing community engagement, try, try, you know, taking that step. And just as you said, without, you know, putting the people in the center and really starting to build that trust, you know, it's it's not going to feel helpful to folks in the community. So what are some practical things that folks can do to actually start building that trust? Yeah. So one of the things I will say, I start, so it might, feel, it might feel a little awkward, but, you know, so let's say that your nonprofit might, you know, provides meals. Let's just stick with that. But I think that, you know, one of the ways to do that is to really engage in your community is to try to see, can you get engaged in other activities that that community cares? Other festivals where you need to be at? Uh, and not necessarily as a provider, not necessarily as the organization, building community. I think it's so important for them to see you, for them, for you to get to know the families, for you to get to know, you know, people in the school district, because a lot of times we don't realize, but healthcare organizations like hospital or clinics, local clinics, especially, or schools are the ones who are sending um, individuals to specific organizations to receive the services. And so they are 
they already have a, a built system, trust system with the community. So kind of going to them and saying, hey, we, we want to be part of this community. So how can we join you in this effort, right? And it might be literally, you can even do um, events in the community for free, but just informational, like not, not even selling your services at all. It's more about just saying, can I, you know, can I join this other organization and planting trees? Can I go to an after-school program and get to meet the families. Because once they start seeing you, people quickly understand and feel the connection. And like I said, I think a lot of the times we um, we need to go to the source of what people are getting there. They're already building, they have a trust source from to, to just say, teach me about your community, right? Like, let me be part of this community. And, and I think the other thing too that I will say is when you're coming on, be your real self. It's not about the organization at that point. It's about the individual. And people see the individuals are part of the organization, which means that if they can trust the individual, then they can trust the organization. Yeah, I think as you were talking, that definitely was what I was thinking about in terms of, you know, just remembering, like, put away your organization hat and just remembering that it's a it's a person-to-person communication and you're building a relationship and, you know, just taking the time to have done your homework in terms of you know, who else is already in the community, uh, where you can find allies, where, as you're saying people already have relationships and trust built um, that you can build on and and you know and then of course you're going to have to 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 build trust with those potential allies but too often I think we have so many small organizations trying to do great work but they're they're doing it a little bit in a vacuum and they're not seeing what else is you know what else is in in their vicinity who else is doing work similar to them or maybe complementary to them and it seems like, I don't know, we have such big systemic issues to, to work on that I, my hope for nonprofit organizations is to kind of get out of the idea of competition and really get into more of the idea of partnership and, and how can we complement each other? How can we, you know, work together, which is hard work. It's not easy to do collaboration. There's a lot of things that get in the way, but uh, you know, that that's my hope overall so that we can all have a greater impact. Where do you think organizations kind of make mistakes when they when they try to do that community engagement uh, work? Well, they make, in kind of really going along with what you mentioned earlier, the competition, right? I think is trying to say, um, trying to be driven by what they feel they think the community needs. Because a lot of the times, uh, and I have had plenty of conversations in the nonprofit world with other nonprofits, especially in healthcare. <laughs> that was where I came from. And, you know, people were saying, hey, you know, we see this need. We see that people should get this uh, in order for them to accomplish why, for example, right? And uh, then they, this nonprofit organization starts start getting built. And like you said, there's already so much duplication of services. And also there are people, then I think when, to me what it looks like is the more and more nonprofit organizations that come up to try to serve the same community for a specific need, then you have people who are knowledgeable in that area splitting up into this nonprofit organizations, trying to help them come up, come up to speed or you know, kind of build some momentum. Um, and what that hap- and what happens is, yeah, you have these organizations that they're feeling in their heart and sometimes based on the grants that these are the services that they need to provide for a community that they might not really know very well. Or if they know it very well, then maybe the services that they're trying to provide are already a duplicate of other services 
that are already out there. Um, I know in Portland a long time ago when I was helping uh, build, like it was, um, I was part of this organization that had nothing to do with nonprofits, but we were trying to provide data to them about homelessness and how many people in Portland were homeless. And this is like four or five years ago. And so we started talking to all these nonprofits about their services because we wanted to compile them in one we wanted to have like a web interface where you can go in there and say like, do you need access to showers? Who can provide access to showers? Do you need access to meals like breakfast, lunch, and whatever? And what we started finding is what you mentioned earlier, that there was a lot of duplication. And the, the, the worst thing was nobody could keep track of an individual. So we were do, like, we were triple counting sometimes a person in one day because one person will go one place to get a shower. And then the, a few hours later, they will go somewhere else to get a, a breakfast meal. And then somewhere, you know, the afternoon, they will go get dinner. And then the evening, they will go get shelter. And this, these organizations were saying, oh, we have four people that utilize the service, right? And in essence, it was the same person, but they couldn't tell it was the same person. So when they were applying to grants, a lot of the grants were saying, well, we're seeing a huge intake on shelters, you know, because we have X amount of people asking for shelters, when in reality, it could be in the same person, but they just went to different shelters a different night. So again, I think um, one of the things too that I've seen a lot is when we're applying for grants. And like I mentioned earlier, sometimes the grants come with requirements or they're saying, you know, we'll give you the money to do X, but you also have to make sure that you're collecting this other data. I think it's important to ask when you're applying for grants, why is the, why do they feel the need of that data is important? Or why do they feel the need to provide that additional service is important? Because I think a lot of times too, what happens is it distracts you from your real purpose and your real goal because you're trying to meet the needs of the grant, the organization that is providing the grant. Therefore, people feel start feeling overwhelmed because they're like, I got to do what I, I feel is my, is a need in my community, but I also have to meet the requirements for this grant that, you know, is going to help us provide those services. So just, I think, be really honest with organizations because also organizations that are providing the grants might not be in the front line a lot of the times. And they're also going by what they, what data they're getting, what information they're being getting as well. And it might not be the right the right opportunity for a nonprofit that really wants to serve a community in a certain way. Yeah. And of course, as you're talking about those data issues and, you know, there's, there's been such a shift to try to shift from, you know, just counting output. So like who showed up at what place, of course, you know, there's huge privacy issues with, with the scenario you just talked about and in terms of data and, but also trying to, you know, as, as grant makers are trying to move towards helping organizations be able to measure their impact. Um, it's a complicated thing and it's hard, especially community based organizations for them to have the bandwidth literally and not literally to to take that on and really really have a useful kind of data collection system that that uh, goes back to and and can feel like right can feel like uh, kind of bureaucracy or you know why are we why do we have to do this so uh, you are a TEDx speaker and your your focus was on mentorship and your your uh, you say that that men- mentoring is backwards so I'm I'm wondering if uh, you'd like to talk a little bit about kind of what do you think backwards about the tra- traditional approach and and some thoughts in, in the mentoring area? Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> so I did a TEDx on mentoring, why mentoring is backwards. So basically where I was coming from on that is that a lot of the times when we think about mentoring, we think, you know, we train the mentors, we're training the mentors for them to actually be, help the mentee 
be able to get to the next step. And what happens a lot is that as a mentee, we feel like there's a couple of things that are happening, right? So one, we're like, when we're asking for some support from a mentor, we respect them a lot. And we're also already grateful that they're giving us their time to engage with us. And, and so that, and that's great. But the mentor is trying to move an agenda based on what they think we need because we have come for the support. And so what happens is that the mentee is not being trained to actually manage their own mentoring relationship themselves. So we should be the ones, the mentees, coming to the mentor and saying, hey, person A, I really need some support in this area. And these are the skills or the time commitment that I'm asking for the support for me. And then the mentor should be the, the individual that we're asking for the help from. She'll decide, oh, okay, so do I have the skills or the experience that this mentee is trying to go after? Bar says, the mentor saying, oh, I want to mentor you or company saying so-and-so is going to mentor you, Cynthia, today, uh, when there might not be a connection in terms of understanding what my real needs are. So when I was saying the mentoring is backwards is because for the longest time, you know, we have invested so much money in companies and organizations in the community spend so much money like training the mentors to be mentors but there's very little investment in actually helping individuals learn how to become mentees like you know if you ask a lot of the one of the big questions how can you, you, how can you really like make the most of this yeah and you know one relationship. of the questions Totally. And like a lot of us don't get training in high school or college about how do you, you know, how do you plan your career? How do you understand all the skills that you have? How do you, you know, transferable skills? And I think it came to light to me when I was working at the last nonprofit organization, helping students get placed into internships. I mean, they couldn't even sell them. And when I say that sell themselves, it's like, you know, the, do the elevator speech to really showcase their skill sets. You know, I was just like, we have not been taught to do that at all. Like we kind of, we are on our, on our own. And one of the big questions that I get asked all the time is how do I, how do I ask someone to be my mentor? And the reason why that question keeps coming up all the time is because we are literally not trained to know and understand what we should be looking for in a mentor that will work for us. And I see parallels between, you know, our previous conversation where this is at the one-to-one level, right? It's about a, a mentor and a mentee, but if it's all about the mentor and what can they provide, if, you know, you think of that as the organization and the community, if, you know, the, the traditional approach has been, it's all about the organization and what it can provide the community, let's flip that around and say, well, you know, helping and, and, and you know, creating ways for the community say, no, these are the things that we need and these are the things that, you know, the resources that we're looking for in the same way that you want to help a a mentee, you know, take ownership of that relationship and take ownership of, you know, what they're trying to get out of it. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, I, I don't think a lot of people realize it, right? Because for the longest, like, I was one of those people that I just kept going to, to individuals that were not only in a higher level position than I was, because I thought this is how you do mentoring. This is what we've been trained to do. We've been trained to look for those people that are, that have the jobs that we dream of or have the profession that we want to go after. But in reality, like mentoring can be peer mentoring. It can be, you know, I, I talk in my TED talk, um, finding your own likelies. So sometimes we get into relationship, mentoring relationships where there's not engagement because we feel like, oh, well, the mentor doesn't really match with my, you know, my style or my expertise. And then the mentor thinks exactly the same thing. So that relationship doesn't really flourish as much. And then mentors are saying, you know, think immediately like, oh, the, the person wasn't into it. The person didn't want to get in, want to be engaged when it should really be, they should really look at the other way, right? If, they, if the mentor, the mentee was trained 
then they can say, you know what, like, I'm going to actually see why we're so unlike and why can I actually learn from this relationship? Is there something that they know how to do really well that I don't? Is there information that they have that I haven't been exposed to? And so I'm trying to find, again, learning opportunities in those situations. And that's what happens a lot of times. You know, like you have corporate programs and they kind of match you based on the needs of the mentor, right? Like when can the mentor meet? When, you know, how much availability do they have? Who's going to lead the relationship? And that's why I think a lot of times mentors shy away from wanting to be mentors because they feel that responsibility is false within them. And the mentor, mentee is expected to kind of follow their lead when, again, it should really be all the way around. Yeah. And I, I worked for an organization where the program started out as a one-to-one mentorship for emerging professionals in the particular field that that organization served. And what we found over time is that it worked way better if we moved it to a group mentoring model. So I'm still a mentor. We ended up calling them coaches, you know, who had been in the field for a little bit longer, but then had a was was leading and facilitating a group of people. And so, you know, it gives you that many more uh, chances to connect. Because when we did the first instance where it was the one-to-one, about a third of the people ended up having a great relationship and they're probably still connecting with each other. You know, some maybe met one or two times, it didn't really work and then it dropped off. And then, you know, maybe the other third never ended up getting in touch with each other. There just wasn't enough structure and, and support for them, all those tools that you're talking about. And it was so interesting to see when we moved to that the group model, you know, you had that person who was a little further ahead, but then you also had the peer relationships being built as well. And so, you know, they just have that many more chances to connect with somebody, that many more perspectives. And the other thing that was really interesting um, that we learned, we found worked better, which was surprising, was the assumption at the at first when the when the program was built that, you know, we should be recruiting people who are super senior in the field, you know, they've been doing it for 35 years, you know, whatnot. And what we actually found was that people maybe five to 10 years ahead of where the, those professionals were was, was a much better connection because they could still remember having to learn. You know, they could still, for the folks who've been in the field for so long, they had long forgotten the experience of being new and and having to go through that learning curve. So it was really interesting, all those assumptions that we had, that we had to rethink. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Uh, at the end of each episode, I'm doing a little game with folks. I have a box of icebreaker questions. I'm really glad that other people have created lots of things like this because even though I am a facilitator, it's not it's not my strongest strength. So I've got a couple questions here and I'm just going to pick one. And so my question for you is, if you could solve one world problem, what would it be? Ooh, <laughs> excellent question. If I could solve one world problem, I think it would be accessibility to opportunities when you graduate college. I think a lot of the times, like I mentioned earlier, we don't prepare students enough in what the real world looks like. And we expect them to act like they know automatically how they should survive. 
So for me, what I think is a world problem is because it does affect a lot of individuals and it affects a lot of communities. And I've been in that area for so many years and seen it repeatedly. And even with myself as a first generation woman of color, what that looked like. So I will say that that will be the one problem I would want to fix is providing more real life experiences as you're going through college and high school. So then you know what to really expect and really know how to navigate the environment once you graduate and is, and is able to be an adult. I think that would be awesome. I felt clueless when I was graduating about all of that. And not that not a parallel experience in terms of being first generation, but you know, my mom was mostly a stay-at-home mom. So she hadn't gone through that. And I don't know, somehow we never got the memo of how to how to navigate. So it took a lot of stumbling, a lot of meandering to figure it out. At, at the same time, I do feel like young people feel like they have to have it all figured out. And mm-hmm. I think that part of that part of your life is a little bit of that stumbling and meandering where you learn and you try different. And, and I guess hope, just hoping for folks that they're willing to try different things and know that over time, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I might have finally figured out what I'm supposed to do when I grow up, but uh, yeah, it takes a while. It takes a while, but yeah, that would be a good one to solve. <laughs> so what are you excited about in terms of things that are emerging for you right now? Ooh, I guess what I'm excited about is, you know, really trying to figure out, continue to find passion in what I do. I think, you know, is I think the times that we're on right now with the pandemic trying to really be creative and, and really dive into my perhaps skills that I didn't really utilize as much and, and connect, reconnecting with people. I think that has been one of the things that I really have enjoyed the most is for some reason, you know, I always tell people like, oh, we'll connect, we'll have coffee, we'll have lunch. And, you know, that happens very slowly because all the things get on the way. And with, you know, in the situation that we are right now, it's like I'm automatically sending messages to people and it's like, let's jump on Zoom. And I think I'm learning so much more too about individuals, how they're trying to cope with this situation. And it's helping me really understand a little bit more about who I am and really try to bring up a different perspective on how to look at things, uh, opportunities, innovation, accessibility. And I think right now that's just one. is is definitely a moment where I kind of feel that there's a lot of opportunity for growth and it's also a big opportunity for risk. Definitely. So how can people get in touch with you? What's the, what's the, how can they find out about your work? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so you can go to www.authenticaconsulting.com and that's authentica in Spanish and it's authentic. <laughs> and yeah, it's my website. You can find the things that I do there. You can definitely go to my LinkedIn. It's Cynthia Manuel. And my Twitter is also Cynthia Manuel. So yeah, follow me as well. And I'm, you know, hopefully we can connect and I'm happy to just have conversations about nonprofit, equity, diversity, and inclusion. You know, I'm always happy to, to talk to, to new folks. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and we really appreciate it.